Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This podcast is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Check out my newly refreshed page of my favorite wines. 10% off your first order. We got some really fun stuff happening for the end of the year. Check it out today, wineaccess.com slash WFMP. We can't do this show without them, so please support them. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. This is one of these shows where I'm going back in the catalog and I'm like, I cannot believe we haven't done this before. We are doing the New Zealand overview. We have done a lot of shows on New Zealand, many shows with Simone Madden Gray, and I will list all of them and you can go back. But I think that the way that we did the overview was we had George Garris from Villa Maria come on and do most of the overview. And although that is fantastic, we don't have anything where you and I just sort of dork out on it. So I figured we would do it now. you dork out on it. Whatever. It gets dorked out upon. Right. We both love New Zealand wines. Yes. It is a bucket list item to go there. We have to find the ring, of course. (laughs) You're going to go to Mount Doom? Yes. You're going to see the Eye of Sauron and fight all the orcs? I hear he's a great winemaker. Really? Yes, and the orcs are really good pickers. You know, Sauron was very good at deforestation, which a lot of the early viticulturists really specialized in. So that makes sense. New Zealand is one of these countries that for a long time, it blew under the radar and then people realized how gorgeous it was. And now it's probably mobbed with tourists, but we are not during COVID. It was like billionaire haven, right? Everyone was moving there to escape. Our dear friends, Polly and Keith were living there. They were like, you don't go out at all? (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) New Zealand does have actually a pretty long winemaking history, and it's pretty fantastic. So we're going to get to that. And this is an action-packed, dense show. But I have to say, the patrons are coming with me again to Piedmont. We have a group, another sold-out tour to Piedmont. You just had another uh, call with them, right? And let me just say, what a spectacular group of people. Really? Yeah, big surprise. I know. Some of these people have been listening to the show. Dan, Yeah, you I'm said gonna, there were some that, like, like back you, from the Rick Dan days, and, and they, didn't, John, they haven't I mean, spoken up. Come on, guys. You got to let me know you're out there so that I can give you the shout out. So I'm going to embarrass them right now and say that Dan A. and Jen, his wife, and John and Athena, I'm excited to meet you. Veranda. They have been listening to the show forever. So I got to give them some shout outs. And we also have to give our new patrons shout outs as well. I'm pretty excited to have Natalia P, Merv, Gianna B, Cherry D, Tony B, Tom C, Alicia C, Adam W, Kenny C, Richard A, Laura, Brad S, Bob H, Thomas K, Gustavo, Lindsay R, Daniel P. That's Daniel Posner, who was on the show last week. Thanks, Daniel. It's always fun when we see these people on the page and they interact. Tom Wark is always on the page, so that's really amazing. He's a good contributor, gives great ideas and opinions, and has great taste in wine. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Karen W., Kim B., Edgar, Christopher M., 
thank you everybody for joining and we really, really appreciate the support. We can't do it without you. We really genuinely can't. Thanks to everybody who has considered joining, who has joined, who has rejoined. We we really, really love you. And couldn't and do it without sh- you. Honestly couldn't. So let's talk New Zealand, which just makes me happy, I have to say. Just thinking about all the pictures. I mean, I'm really excited to go to Mount Doom someday. I, I hope I don't fall in. Yeah, I, I would hope so. Yeah. We always make this joke when we do New Zealand. <laughs> Poor New Zealand. We could revert back to Kiwis. I never have called New Zealanders Kiwis. I don't know why they're called that, so, and I, I never called them that. I always call them New Zealanders. I worked for the guy who was married to a New Zealander. He called her Kiwi all the time, like it was a badge of honor. Oh, really? Yes. I don't know. I just never... I don't know if it's, if it's a pejorative or like a know. cute nickname. I don't know what it is. I don't call them that. I call them New Zealanders. So I will not okay. be calling them that in this show. New Zealand, if you have looked at a map, it's an isolated, cool climate island nation in the South Pacific Ocean. There are two main islands. There's a bunch of other little ones, but there's two main islands that make up New Zealand. There is the North Island and the South Island. In the North Island, there are a bunch of wine regions, but the South Island is where the majority of wine is made. That's basically the summary of New Zealand. It stretches over Well, 10, that was great. Good job. Thank you. Thank 10 you. degrees of latitude. I think this is still part of that oh, okay. summary. 35 to 45 degrees south. So all of it is within the grape growing band, which is 30 to 50. At least it used to be. I think it's inched up, up to sure. 50 plus. But New Zealand does contain the southernmost vineyards in the world. Really? Yes, in Even central Otago. It's more southern than Chile or Argentina? Yes. So wow. those vineyards only start dipping into 40 degrees. South Africa? Yes. Oh, South Africa's like at 38. Oh, yeah. God. But New Zealand goes full on into 45. Yeah. New Zealand wine regions extend about 1,100 kilometers or 700 miles. So it goes from a subtropical wine growing region called Northland, which we'll cover very briefly, to central Otago, which we'll cover in more depth because that's where a lot of fine Pinot comes out of. New Zealand is only 1% of total world wine volume, which is crazy because the outsized reputation, especially of Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc, also Pinot Noir from various areas, including Marlboro, Martinborough, Central Otago. These are wines that I think most of us know. And yet, of course, Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc we do, but it's only 1% of world wine, Mm -hmm. such a tiny percentage. Although I think a lot of people think, okay, well, I know New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. You're only talking about one specific area if you think that Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc is all that the country has to offer. Nearly 90% of production is exported to the U.S., to Britain, to Australia, and to other countries as well. But New Zealand is a major force in terms of reputation. They have an enormous reputation. The wines are of very high quality, but they don't make a whole lot Okay. on the history. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that Vitis vinifera was planted in New Zealand in 1819. 
by Samuel Marsden, who was a missionary to New Zealand. This was in Northland, that subtropical area. He had 100 vines, planted it at the mission station. By 1840, you had the British colonial era. And then James Busby, who was a Brit who also formed much of the Australian wine industry, made the first recorded wine in New Zealand from a small vineyard that he planted in Waitangi. Now, I'm sorry, by the way, if I pronounce things wrong. I don't know Maori, so I'm going to try to be as respectful as possible. He had established Hunter Valley. He had established a bunch of wine regions in Australia and then came to New Zealand. By the 1850s, you had French missionaries coming to Hawke's Bay. They made communion wine. Now it's part of Mission Estate Winery, which is the oldest commercial winery in New Zealand. 1881, already Pinot Noir and Syrah were planted in Masterton. This is in the Wairarapa region near Martinborough, south of the North Island. And this is still incredibly high quality Pinot mm-hmm. and really good Syrahs. Were there any native grapes? No, no native grapes. Okay. There were no native grapes anywhere. I may be really overstepping here, but I don't think there are any native grapes in any of the Southern Hemisphere. What? I think grapes are native to the Northern Hemisphere. Now, that doesn't just mean vitis vinifera, but they were brought to South Africa. There were no native grapes there. There were no native grapes to Chile or Argentina. There were no native grapes to Australia or to New Zealand. Oh, my God. No wonder maps are oriented the way they are. What? That the entire world takes place in the... Yeah, because it all revolves around the grapes, clearly. What I'll tell you is Canada and the U.S. have native grapes. Most European countries have native grapes. Even Lebanon and Israel have native grapes. Places in the Middle East where they wouldn't make wine out of it because of religious purposes, but they grow grapes, table grapes there. So I think that grapes are a Northern Hemisphere thing. Any grapes that are in the Southern Hemisphere were brought. How is this just coming up now? You waited, you saved us for 400 some episodes? I'm reserving the right now to say that I have not researched this, but Everything I've ever read about the winemaking regions tells me that grapes are not a native crop to the Southern Hemisphere. Okay, we need to take a year off and travel the globe to investigate this. I agree. This needs immediate attention. I agree. But we know Australia and New Zealand are island nations, and grapes did not grow natively there. That's checked off. South Africa also didn't have any. Thing that's the yeah, big question Yeah, but Australia mark, was Africa, connected to Indonesia at one point. right. I don't know that Indonesia has native grapes either. Hmm. China does. Right. China's in the Northern Hemisphere. Right. Japan, I believe, also has native grapes. Hmm. Maybe our next show is yeah. You need to get on this. Get on this. Anyway, interesting conversation. But we go go back to New Zealand. Dalmatian immigrants. Where are Dalmatian immigrants from? Croatia, correct. And so that was in the late 19th century, early 20th century. They brought a lot of vines. They brought knowledge. This was mostly in Auckland, and this was mostly for fortified wine and very basic table wine. I was trying to think of her name, Corella. Yes, Corella yes. de Vilbrich. Yes. First half of the 20th century, wine was really a non-factor. New Zealand had a beer culture, dairy and meat and wool were the most important things in terms of the economy in New Zealand. I feel like wool has sort of a gatanic effect. I, I think it's more like Chenin Blanc has kind mm-hmm. of that wool lanolin note okay. to it. So, And they didn't grow that. I think that's the big problem. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. There was a temperance movement here also. Ooh. Now, it was not like the U.S. temperance movement. From 1911 to the 1930s, this is basically tracking. You mean the like the temperance. prohibition period, not now. 
Uh, well, now we <laughs> can talk about that all day long. But yes, there were a lot of dry individual counties and they courted prohibition, but they could not get it to be national. Hmm. And the Depression basically ended most of the temperance movement. Then in the 1940s, Phylloxera destroyed a lot of the vineyards. And then, like a lot of people, they decided to plant European-American hybrids, right. which were great for disease resistance, but... I'm sorry for you guys who are big hybrid advocates. Most people do not find them as pleasurable as Vitis vinifera. Hmm. So they did not like the flavor. By the 1960s, there was a six o'clock swill policy. Pubs were only open for an hour after work and they were closed on Sunday. What? That ended in the 1960s. So that opened the door for wine and other alcoholic beverages to have some foothold here. In the 1970s, you had what the Australians, I believe, call the walkabout, but the New Zealanders call the OE, the Overseas Experience. And that became really popular with younger, educated New Zealanders. A lot of them went to Europe, and as a result of that, they gained an appreciation for wine, hmm. and then they wanted to know, hey, what do we do? we make wine in New Zealand? What's interesting here? Huh. Now, in 1973, something really bad happened for New Zealand, which is that they lost their favorable trade terms for New Zealand meat and dairy. So then they were forced to diversify well, how did because, that ha- what, what? because it was a commonwealth. Okay. They had exclusive trading rights with the UK. Uh-huh. And then the UK said, we can't subsidize you anymore. Dang, okay. And that was because the UK joined the EU. And so they were restricted in trade terms. They couldn't give the favorable stuff anymore to the New Zealanders. New Zealand had to figure out what they were going to do. So they started to take some of this marginal pasture land with bad soils Mm -hmm. and turn it into vineyards. And the demand for quality wine started to go up and then they started ditching the hybrids and plant better stuff. I would think that exporting would be, I mean, who are they going to sell to? I mean, it's a small island. Well, remember, 90% is exported of what they do. And and they have always had an export economy. Right. Yes, they're going to make this wine and they're going to export it. They needed another revenue source. They could no longer only do dairy and meat and the derivative products, Mm -hmm. wool. They needed now to figure out another thing to export that didn't need a subsidy and that was going to be appealing to more people than just the British because they needed to start expanding their horizons. So wine was a natural thing here. By 1973, now Montana Wines, which was the big one, and if you listen to the podcast with Jeff Clark from O2, he worked for Montana for a really long time Mm -hmm. and gives a good history of it. Now that is Brancotta State which is owned by Pernod Ricard. Those were Marlboro's first vineyards. I think even before that, established vineyards in Hawke's Bay on the North Island. Marlboro starts to become the largest grape-growing area in New Zealand, with Sauvignon Blanc planted as the flagship variety. Still, though, at that time, Müller-Turgau, which is generally considered a very ho-hum grape from Germany, was the most planted white grape, along with lots of hybrids. It wasn't until 1984 that the government paid people to pull up vines that they actually took the money and instead of instead of pulling up yeah. Miller Targau, they just replaced it with better stuff. They were supposed to pull up the vines and not replace them with something? They were supposed to pull up the vines because there was too much wine and it was bad and they couldn't uh, sell it. So they said, okay, we'll take up your money. We, we will pull up the vines. Yeah. But then they used the money to put better rootstock in. Uh-huh. This was in the 1980s. So then they started to win competitions. Cloudy Bay in 1985 got international attention. And then since the 1990s, Sauvignon Blanc has been the white variety in 
New Zealand, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Riesling, Gewürztraminer, and then Pinot Noir. Syrah is growing. By 1994, 64% of all the wine exports were to the UK. So they relied on their traditional markets, but then they started to diversify a lot. They were really ahead of the curve also because in 1995, they had their first national sustainability program to look out for climate change and soil degradation and things like that. In the 2000s, 358 wineries, the area under Vine had doubled in 10 years from 1990 to the 2000s. Wow. In 2001, they had the Screw Cap Wine Seal Initiative. New Zealand decided that they were going to only use screw caps. Today, over 95% of New Zealand wines are under screw cap. Wow. They like it because earlier drinking wines are good for retaining freshness. And they say wines that require cellaring will still age under screw caps as there is sufficient oxygen in the headspace inside the bottle for maturation to occur. However, aging may take longer under screw cap. Let me be real clear. About 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. the language on their site was really, really harsh about cork. The language around cork has changed significantly, both because cork has shaped up. And I think the cork producers got really angry at New Zealand for saying some very damaging things Mm -hmm. about cork. Great. Portugal versus New Zealand. And it's Spain. It's Portugal. It's a bunch of other places. But it is widely acknowledged that, first of all, I'm not going to go into this now, but cork is more sustainable than screw cap. You have to throw screw cap in the garbage. You can recycle cork and it's used for a lot of different things. That's one. Two, it's made from trees. They're harvested over the course of 15 years. Well, you don't have to cut down the tree for it. You just pull off the bark. Right. So it is a natural product. And with that, you are going to have some flaws. And that does suck. But at the same time, we can't necessarily say that screw cap is more sustainable. It may be better for the wine, Mm -hmm. but it's not more sustainable. So... Okay, sounds like a whole other podcast. Whole other podcast. Now, it took them until 2016 to pass their geographical indications. What? Like AVAs, American Viticultural Areas. It took them until 2016. They've been making wine since 1819 or 18, whatever. New Zealand's parliament just passed it in 2016. Lord knows this podcast has been going on longer than that. Yeah. They said that this is an international safeguard for New Zealand's geographic names. Interestingly, I wonder, because Marlboro has come up with a number of secure measures also, I wonder if there's some counterfeiting going on. If people are calling things Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc or other things, other names that are not necessarily correct because they don't have geographical protection. Today, there are 731 registered wineries. So we're in an two- Island Two Nation. Island, yep. All the vineyards are within 80 miles or 120 kilometers from the ocean. Wow. You can imagine that that means that there's a maritime, maritime climate. climate. They're also, because of where it is, really long sunshine hours, and the nights are cooled by sea breezes in most places. But aren't there a lot of mountains? So you've there got are, like rain shadows well, it's and really on slopes the, to deal with. And... The South Island has the Alps, okay. the Southern Alps. There are a couple of areas in the North Island that have that, but the South is really the place with the big mountains. Okay. It is dry. There's a lot of sun. The nights are cooled by the sea. Most of the wine regions happen to be on the eastern coastlines of the North and South Islands because you uh, need to be protected because of the roaring 40s which are these very strong winds in the 40s that oh, latitude. Latitude right. that will blow 
against the vineyards. It's not just whipping winds, but it's also wet winds, mm-hmm. which you definitely do not want in viticulture. There's variation from the north to the south also, so we'll talk about that. The land, alluvial valleys, lots of local sandstone that's called gray wacky. It has an E on it. It looks like gray whack, but gray it's whack. gray wacky. And this is from the mountains of New Zealand. The runoff is gray wacky. If we talk about the grapes and the wines, one thing that we can definitely say about New Zealand, the wines are known for purity. They are so pure. It's like crystal clear flavor. Whether you like it or not, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc has a very distinctive style. It is the easiest wine to pick out out of a lineup, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And New Zealand Pinot Noir also has a very distinctive profile. They believe that it's because they protect the environment. Obviously, they've had a sustainability program in place much longer than a lot of other people. Some of the wine regions are actually quite remote also, and that helps. So you're not going to have the pollution. Production is... 41,603 hectares or 102,803 acres. That is less than Bordeaux and Rhone as well. It's an island's nation. Just trying to give perspective. So it's 1%. Bordeaux is 1.5% of the world's land under vine. Just to give you some perspective. Of their production, Sauvignon Blanc is... 25,559 hectares out of the 41,603 hectares or 65,630 acres out of 102,803 acres. It is 77% of New Zealand production, Sauvignon Blanc. Seems important. 86% of exports. Jeez. Basically, compared to that, everything else is kind of small. Okay, so is there a lot of variety within the, the Sauvignon Blanc? Yes, there is. And as we talk about some of the regions, we'll go over some of the differences in styles. Pinot Noir is the next largest with 14,000 acres, 5,800 hectares. Chardonnay is the next one with 7,875 acres or almost 3,200 hectares. And then Pinot Gris has almost 7,000 acres, 2,800 hectares. Then you have Merlot, you have some Syrah, some Gewürztraminer, Albarino, Zinfandel. That makes sense because of the Croatian heritage. At that point, you're counting grapes, not acres. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah, at that point, right? So Merlot is the next one, and that's like 2,000 acres. We drop precipitously, and then you're right. There's just tiny, tiny little things. The flavors will vary based on where the wine is grown. There's also sparkling wine. I want to mention that. There's lots of pure fruit flavor. Sparkling wine made out of? Pinot Noir and Chardonnay mainly. It's mostly domestic consumption, but it is made there. So Hmm. if you happen to go there, you will see that. In terms of wine regions, Marlborough contains 70% of the plantings. Okay. Then an area called Hawke's Bay on the North Island is 12% of plantings. Central Otago ticks in with a massive 5% of plantings. North Canterbury is 3.5% of plantings. Gisborne is 3. Wairarapa, 2.6. Nelson, 2.6. And then basically less than 300 hectares. Auckland, Northland, 
the Waitaki Valley in North Otago. We will talk about them very briefly. But the main action, I think, is very clear is Marlboro, Hawke's Bay, and Central Otago with some growth in North Canterbury. Those are the four that we really need to concentrate on. And Wairarapa is interesting because it is almost like New Zealand itself. It has a huge reputation for amazing Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc, but it is only... 1% of production. Jeez. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with, in New Zealand, the quality and then the exports. You will find, at least in the United States, and I believe in the UK, the UK has a much larger selection than we do because of the traditional Commonwealth Mm -hmm. relationship. And I know Australia also has a better selection than we do. But in the United States, we are New Zealand fiends. We really love the wines from there. Do we like it more than Australia? And is it fair to compare... New Zealand to Australia? Never. Okay. Totally different climate. Australia has a couple of maritime climate areas, but for the most part, it's much warmer. It's just different, but let's get to the regions. Let's start out with the North Island. Northland. Less than 1% of New Zealand's production. I mentioned this in Auckland just because they're at 36 degrees south latitude. Northland is the most northerly region. It's long and narrow. It's 50 kilometers from the ocean, or what is that, 20, 20 something miles. Subtropical marine climate. The vineyards are on the coastal areas. 220 different types of soils. Most regions have like 20. Loam, heavy clay, there's volcanic soils here So is there a lot of variation within each vineyard? Yes. I mean, down to like rows here? The thing about this that you really need to know, because unless you go there, you're not going to have wines from Northland, is that this is where the first vines were planted in 1819 by Reverend Samuel Marsden. And the Croatian immigrants also helped establish the wine industry here. Of course, as you'd expect at 36 degrees south latitude in a place that has a subtropical marine climate, they have very fruit-forward Chardonnays and Pinot Gris, Viognier, some Syrah. Chardonnay and Syrah are the big ones with 19 hectares and 14 hectares, respectively. Do they like to use oak the same way that other New World countries do? In general, New Zealand is not obsessed with oak. You do see people dabbling with it, especially where Chardonnay is concerned and certainly with some of the reds. But Sounds like they're more conservative. They really like their stainless steel tanks. Every week I tell you about Wine Access. They are the exclusive sponsor of this podcast. You will get 10% off if you go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP or you join the wine club, wineaccess.com slash normal. But the real thing I want to say is that besides the fact that Wine Access helps keep this podcast going and they are such an important part of what we do here, they are so great in the coming months, we're going to have a bunch of really fun things. We're going to do some stuff for Halloween. We're going to have some packs for Thanksgiving so that you have some opportunity to try great wines that I've selected. Definitely sign up for their daily emails. There's no obligation to buy unless you join the wine club. You're just getting emails and you're learning about wine and about all of these fantastic producers that they have access to because in the end that's what wine access is about it's about getting you access to producers that you cannot get locally and you can't find in a lot of places so go to wineaccess.com wineacces.com slash wfnp take a look at what 
I recommend 10% off your first order. You can also join the wine club. It's not too late. We've got a great shipment coming up for the holiday season. So you will get your wines in time for Thanksgiving and for Christmas, $150 for six bottles. Wineaccess.com slash normal. Also, don't forget, we've already said how important our patrons are to us. If you want to have an opportunity to go on trips to Italy with me, if you want an opportunity to get to know the other folks in this community and to really have a spectacular time learning about wine and finding some joy around a place where everybody is just there to learn and have fun. And there is a wonderful, wonderful environment. Join Patreon today and help keep the podcast going as well. We can't do it without the patrons. P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people. And we have had so many new people taking wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes, the classes, and they have loved them. I'm so overjoyed. The classes are dorky. They are long. They are live and online. Again, another way to get involved in the community. I just want to thank everybody, all the new people for taking the classes, taking a chance on them and coming back and taking them again and again and again. So usually if someone takes one class, they're going to take another one. If you've got the patience to hang out for a couple hours and learn about wine, with a great community where we just joke around and then we hang out afterwards too if you want to stick around for that. We do polls to find out what did everybody like, which wine, we get your feedback. Another great community event, really fun way to spend your Saturday, especially now that it's going to get a little bit colder. The Wine for Normal People classes on a Saturday night are a fun way to have some friends over and have a great time. So do it today, wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes and I will see you live on the screen when you sign up for one. Now let's get back to the show. Auckland. Of course, when you think about the establishment of a wine region, where would you do it? You'd do it where the people were. In the early 1900s, Croatian, Lebanese, English winemakers, and we still see that today. Babich, which you've probably seen before, Nobilo, Mm -hmm. are both brands that were started around Auckland. Again, less than 1% of total production, 36 degrees south latitude. A lot of the wine companies are located here because this is the trading center. Right, right. It used to be actually a lot bigger. It includes vineyards on the island of Waiiki, West Auckland, coastal areas. There's some rolling hills, volcanic clay soils. North, especially this portion of the north, is volcanic. They've got sandstone and silt. The problem here is that there's not great drainage, and we're still talking about a subtropical climate. It's marine to subtropical, and it's warm. So what does that mean if it's humid? That is a really tough place to grow grapes. Humidity and warmth With lots of high rainfall, the disease pressure is out of control. Yeah. What about diurnals? There are some diurnals, but they're not very strong because, again, subtropical climates, well, we live in a subtropical climate. Right. The diurnal temperature swings are not great. They have some Syrah. They do Petit Verdot, Montepulciano, Chardonnay, Viognier, but Syrah and some red blends are basically what they do. So if you happen to be in Auckland, you could drive out. I'm very small region, but there's some stuff around. You could go to Wahiki Island, which apparently is quite beautiful. The pictures look nice. Mm-hmm. Gisborne. Gisborne is now, now we're starting to get into some real production. This is 4% of production. It's an eastern area on the North Island at 38 degrees south latitude. Captain Cook. First landfall in Gisborne. Okay. First place in New Zealand to see the sunrise. Incredibly Eastern. The vines were planted here in 1850s. In the 1960s, Montana, now Brancott, Pernod Ricard, Penfolds, and some others planted vineyards in Gisborne 
so that they could have bulk wine production. It's hot, it's dry, the soils are a little fertile, lots of grapes, good for bulk wine. Is it true bulk wine or is it bulk wine for New Zealand? it's bulk wine. Okay. Even though it's quite hot here, rain is still an issue. They used to plant a lot on the floodplains. That's where you're going to get lots of vigor and you're going to get bulk wines. They're moving away from that now. There's a couple subregions in Gisborne, but Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Pinot Gris, very tropical and ripe, as you would expect in a warm climate, fuller bodied, higher alcohol, round in style. You're not going to get that kind of acidity like we're going to see as we move farther south. Hawke's Bay, second largest region, 8% of production. Now we are at 40 degrees south latitude. This is a mild climate. It is very sunny. It's almost like Bordeaux, maybe a little bit less sun than Bordeaux in terms of sun hours. Maritime climate, winds are going to temper the heat. It's a long growing season. There are some high areas here. So this is where we start to see elevation, and that's going to protect from the wind. But frost is a risk as you go further inland. Jeez. They also have cool and wet weather, but they have free-draining soil, so if it's wet, vines can handle it. There's a bunch of different areas within Hawke's Bay. So you have coastal areas with a long-growing season and gravelly soils. That's good for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. It is more temperate near the coast. Alluvial plains, that's really widely planted. However, there are some amazing areas, especially the gravel beds, which have free draining soils and are excellent, especially for Merlot. It is not warm enough and the season is not long enough to ripen Cabernet Sauvignon consistently. But there's an area called the Gimblet Gravels and the Really? Bridge. There's that much of a difference between Cab and Merlot? Yes, Merlot is mid-ripening, really, and Cabernet needs to go later into the season. Mm-hmm. The Gimlet Gravels and Bridge Paw Triangle makes some top wines. And then you have the hillsides. Those are being explored much more now as they're realizing the hillsides are really good for sites. And the best thing is as you move up onto the hillside, your frost risk diminishes as opposed to being on the valley floor where the cold air pools. You want to be on the hillsides if you want to resist frost. I guess that makes sense because cold air sinks. Yeah. yeah. In really cold weather, it's not great to be on the valley floor. Right. Because all of the cold air is going to drain out. But to usually I floor. think altitude is going to be colder. But It will be colder this, yep. at night. Right. You'll definitely get better diurnal temperature swings. So there's many, many benefits. It may be hotter during the day mm-hmm. on the hillside, but at night the temperature is going to drop and you don't get those cold pockets like you will on the valley floor. Got it. They also have limestone in Hawks Bay. So that's really good for the aromatic whites, Chardonnay, Pinot, things like that. And then they have river valleys. Some of those river valleys, they're valleys because there's some altitude around them. And those better wines are coming from altitude. And there's this area called Central Hawks Bay, which is also at altitude. And that's great for Sauvignon Blanc and for Pinot Noir and for Pinot Gris. Lots of different soil types. There are four rivers running through Hawks Bay, which makes it really diverse, but also allows good irrigation. They need Mm -hmm. irrigation because it can be quite dry here. Red blends, Bordeaux blends with a Merlot lead out of Hawke's Bay are divine. And they do, of course, do Sauvignon Blanc because everybody does. And that's tropical. They might pick it early so it's a little bit more acidity, but the wines are fuller and richer. In Hawke's Bay, how much of the production consists of blends versus single varietals? I don't know the answer to that, but what I can tell you is that Hawke's Bay makes a preponderance of Chardonnay. Most of their wine is Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc. Okay. 
more than a third of the wine mm-hmm. is varietal wine. And then you have some blends. They also have Pinot and Syrah. They are known for blends, but most of it is Chardonnay. Right. Are you ready to jump to the South Island yet? I am not. We have one more minor major, which I mentioned before, at 42 degrees south latitude, and that is the Wairarapa. Wairarapa is Maori for glistening waters. It is 1% of production, but this is the one that I said had the outsized reputation. It's small. It's diverse. This is a place that does not have bulk wine at all. It's a semi-maritime climate. There are mountains in the west, so you're going to have a buffer against some of those harsh winds from the west. They have cool springs and falls. That's a big problem for fruit set and for development. Hot summers, cool nights. So they have a longer growing season, but there's a lot of risk on the bookends. There are three major regions. They have similar climates and soils. Martinborough, which we have definitely had a lot of wine from Mm -hmm. Martinborough, Sauvignon Blanc, and Pinot Noir, which is what it's known for, Gladstone and Masterton. Pinot Noir is their flagship with Sauvignon Blanc. They make also Pinot Gris and Riesling and Gewürztraminer, Chardonnay, Syrah, mm-hmm. dessert wines. Atta Rangi, which is a very famous brand, is out of the Wairarapa. And there's a lot of really famed producers that are out of the Wairarapa. They have very free-draining soils. They have clay loam and limestone. Limestone is always great for Chardonnay and Pinot, and it's also great for Sauvignon Blanc. Gravel, riverbeds, no offense to some of the other areas that we've mentioned, but these are more classic examples of high-quality soils. We mentioned some of them in Hawke's Bay, but not universally so. But here, basically, you've got clay and limestone. What does Burgundy have? Clay and limestone. limestone. If you're going to grow the grapes of Burgundy, especially Pinot, it's going to be really, really happy here. You have a lot of really great areas, especially in the river terraces around Martinborough. The Pinot is really savory. It's very floral. It's got a lot going on. It's not simple. It's earthy, but probably more on the perfume side than earthy. You can get more of that out of Central Otago, I think. The Sauvignon Blanc is awesome. Unlike... The Sauvignon Blanc out of Marlboro, it tends to be more minerally, less on the jalapeno tropical side, Mm -hmm. and a little bit more herbaceous. You can still tell that it's New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, but it's on the lime side and mineral side. Delicious. Masterton, Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot, really flavorful wines, excellent wines. Gladstone as well. And they're also coming on pretty strong with Syrah right now. Hmm. Martinboro is the most southerly region of the North Island. The wines of Wairarapa are really classic examples, and they're much more restrained. So if you like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, as you know it, Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc, Mm -hmm. and you want a little bit more elegant and restrained, Martinborough would be my recommendation to you. Okay, good to know. Okay, we move to the South Island, and then we move to the big guy, Marlboro. Marlboro put New Zealand on the international stage in the 1980s with Cloudy Bay, 70% of the wine is made here. It is the largest region far and away. It is at the northern end of the South Island. You have Cook Strait, 
to the north, the Pacific Ocean to the east, Mm -hmm. mountains in the west, and there's valleys and ridges everywhere. This is undulating territory, clearly a marine climate. One of New Zealand's sunniest regions, also one of its driest. They cannot do viticulture without irrigation here. Because of the rain shadow? It's cooler, though. Now we are in a much different position than where we were in the North Island. When you think about Marlborough, now you're at 42 degrees south. It's going to make a big difference. You have hot days, but cool nights. And that's going to increase the complexity. The diurnal swing is going Mm -hmm. to make those long ripening. And that's why you have such great acidity in the wines. In addition, during the day, in a lot of areas, you have these cooling sea breezes that allow these grapes to cool down on hot days. Drought can be a problem. Okay. Free-draining soils, alluvial, stony soils. The subregions all have different soils. But the thing that is important to know is... The wines from Marlborough, if anybody's ever had any wine from New Zealand, likely it is from Marlborough, they are distinctive and they're unique and they're very, very pure and they have really strong acidity. Like it or hate it, that's how it is. Marlborough is 81% Sauvignon Blanc. Wow. The winemaking, if we look at what most of the winemaking is, and frankly, we could generalize this to almost all of the areas, although people are experimenting, it's very cool fermentations in stainless steel. Mm -hmm. That's going to preserve the purity of the fruit. It's going to boost aromatics. And although some people are experimenting with fermenting an oak, some people are experimenting with aging an oak of Sauvignon Blanc, of Chardonnay, of a bunch of other things, mostly you're still seeing stainless steel because that is what's going to get you those classic flavors. Now, one other thing that they have started to do is more lees aging on the dead yeast cells and even botanage, the stirring, for more texture and flavor. Again, Mm -hmm. just to give it a little something else so that it's not just one note. Okay. But they are pungent. They are tropical. They're herbaceous. There's no doubt about that. In a good way? Are you, yes. I can't no, tell I love, if you I like love being it. I love it. euphemistic here. No, no, no. I, we drink plenty of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. It's delicious. Pinot, 9% of production. They've got really stable weather in Marlboro in flowering periods in November and December. So that's great for Pinot. Pinot, it really is so sensitive to weather. So if you got stable weather during flowering and fruit set, that's, that's fantastic. Flowering periods, November? Yes. I, it's it's yep. bass ackwards. So yes. It is because it's, it's in the Southern <laughs> Hemisphere. The other thing is Marlboro came pretty late to Pinot. So they let everybody else make the mistakes on the clones, oh, and hmm. they got really high-quality clones. So oh, nice. almost everything that's coming out of Marlboro has high-quality Pinot clones, which is pretty important. Mm-hmm. If you have never had a Marlboro Pinot, they're delicious. They have this earthiness to them, but they're still like berries and plums and things like that. But they're herbal. They can be a little bit spicy. They're medium-bodied. They're not over the top. They so use is it more like oak. Burgundy? Is it more like California... Uh, Oregon. It's right in between. It's clear that it's from the New World, but it is not over the top. Okay. Most of the time. As I mentioned before, the Pinot is used in method traditional sparkling wines, the champagne method. Pinot Gris is 4%. And interestingly, although some is light bodied and lower alcohol, they make sweet late harvest styles and they generally leave residual sugar in the wine hmm. to balance the acidity. So if you don't like that caveat emptor, they're going to use lees. They might use neutral oak on the Pinot Gris. But if you don't like a little bit of sweetness, then Pinot Gris might not be great. They also do other aromatics like Riesling and Gewürztraminer from dry to sweet. Some botrytized wines even in Marlboro. And then Chardonnay is the last major one at 4%. And 
that is a popular wine, but like all Chardonnays, it can be acidic and minerally. It can be citrusy or it can be peachy. It can be really oaky. They also How much use butter this for, are they putting on it? Yeah. French oak. Do they use the lees aging? Do they go over the top? I don't know. I can't tell you, but they grow a ton of other stuff. The plantings are enormous. So Gruner and Viognier and Syrah, and they have Arnaise and Tempranillo, mm -hmm. and they grow a ton of different grapes. They're experimenting all the time. Pretty interesting. The important thing about Marlboro is that, and again, if you go back and listen to the podcast with Jeff Clark from O2, we talk about this. There are three sub-valleys within Marlboro, and this is where the real action is taking place in Marlboro right now. You have the Wairau Valley, the Southern Valleys, and the Awatiri Valley. And these three are distinctive, and they're really the first attempts by Marlboro to start breaking out their separate regions. So if we just take Wairau, Wairau was actually referred to by the Maori as the place with the hole in the cloud because it is dry. It never rains there. These are old gravelly riverbeds, alluvial soils, some mountain waters from the mm -hmm. Wairau River, different aspects. What this is known for is that typical style of tropical jalapeno-y herbaceous Sauvignon Blanc style really strong and intense with a full body that's what you're going to get out of Wairau the southern valleys pretty small area they wrap around the hills and the valleys they vary a lot but this is heavier clay soils Pinot is really what you're going to see out of the Southern Valleys and some aromatic wines, less Sauvignon Blanc in the Southern Valleys. The soil's just a little bit too dense. And then you have what most people, including me, consider the best valley of Marlboro, which is the Awatiri Valley. That is where O2 was from. That's partially okay. why I had Jeff on the show, because I think the Awatiri Valley is insanely good. It's the most distinct by what far. characteristics make it so special? From a geographical perspective, it's inland from the sea. It rises into the ranges, mm -hmm. the Kaikoura ranges. It's dry. It's very windy. It can have some elevation. Because it's so windy, first of all, the leaves, Jeff was talking about this, the leaves can get salt burn. Wow. The ocean breezes will be very, very harsh on the grapes, but it's going to restrict them from overgrowing, which Sauvignon Blanc can be quite vigorous. The landscape is going to take care of that. The Sauvignon Blanc here is much more herbal and minerally than it is tropical. Okay. It is just a completely different style. If you think that you know what Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc mm -hmm. is, I would highly recommend that you take a look at one that is only from the Awatiri Valley because it is something completely different. Is it going to be labeled as such? These days, yes, because okay. it's a That's selling good. point. Again, there must be something going on with the counterfeiting or them worrying about this because 53 producers have launched this thing called Appalachian Marlboro Wine. It was launched in 2018. It was for provenance to protect the integrity of the name Marlboro. The grapes have to be 100% sourced from Marlboro. Mm -hmm. My feeling is, and I think what I've read, is that there are producers up on the North Island okay. that are making Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc uh -huh. with Marlboro grapes and whatever they want to make oh, up there. The vineyards have to be 100% sustainable, and that is the Certified Sustainable Wine Growing New Zealand, which has been around for a long time. They're looking for biodiversity and protection of the environment, although I say that, and it sounds really great, but 97% of Marlboro's vineyards are certified sustainable, so... 
Yields are mandated. I don't think they have a specific yield number, but I think they look at the production stats. For individual wineries? Yeah. Really? Yeah, individual wineries and individual grape varieties. Of course, yield is going to vary by grape variety. The wines are tasted blind. They have to be approved to be certified Appalachian Marlboro wine by an independent panel. They're trying to look at making this more like the Appalachian Origine Controle system in France. Looks like they're doing a pretty good job. It's just that not sure if that lends to their credibility because it's just basically saying you make wine in Marlboro. That is Marlboro. We will go over a couple more places on the South Island. There's an area called Nelson, which is on the northern tip of the South Island at 42 degrees south. Just 2% of the wine used to be known for orchards. German settlers were there. Lots of sunshine hours. It's a sheltered coastal climate, well-drained soils. It is sheltered by hills close to the sea that mitigates a lot of the frost risk. Fall rains are going to be a problem, but they've got good diurnals. So they have Pinot and Chardonnay. Sauvignon Blanc is the biggest of plantings here. Okay. Lots of emerging varietals, Riesling, Gewürztraminer. It is a little bit more elegant and restrained. If you see a Sauvignon Blanc from Nelson, give it a try because mm-hmm. it's probably more almost like the Awatiri Valley. North Canterbury. This is the region where I think people are starting to look for, okay, well, what else does New Zealand have to offer? North Canterbury could be one of the answers. It's at 42 degrees south as well. So it goes 200 kilometers or 124 miles down the coast of the eastern side of the South Island. Just started producing wine in 1978. So this is a relatively new region, Mm -hmm. especially given New Zealand's longer history. History, yep. Now we're at the Southern Alps. The Alps are going to provide a rain shadow. So you have a cool and dry climate, a very long growing season. You do have some hot and dry winds coming out of the west, but cooling sea breezes are going to meet that. So that will temper heat. And the soils will vary. Gravel, limestone clay on the hills, that's great for Pinot. And then you have plains. There's gray, wacky soils there, which is great for Riesling and Pinot. Right. If it weren't free draining, they probably couldn't do anything mm-hmm. there. And it's a little bit cooler. Long, dry fall season. That's going to be really great for giving ripeness and complexity. The grapes really, especially Pinot, which loves a long growing season, this is great for. And that's what is grown here. A lot of Pinot, some Sauvignon Blanc, some Riesling, Chardonnay. The Pinot runs the gamut depending on where it grows. It can be very perfumed and pretty. It can be oaky and heavy. The Sauvignon Blanc is minerally and it's more weighty. Waipara Valley and Waikari, this is where we see a lot of Riesling coming out of. Mm-hmm. Then we have Central Otago. Central Otago is the southernmost vineyards in all the world. It is 81% Pinot grown here. So wow. it is the flip side to Marlboro's 80%. Yep. Sauvignon Blanc. Central Otago is only 3% of the wine. Being outside the typical growing region, it'd be Pinot so finicky. Yeah, it's great in Central Otago, though, because Central Otago is in these snow-capped mountains with rivers. It's got a semi-continental climate. They actually won the first gold medal for what they called Burgundy in 1881 in a competition in Sydney with vines planted in 1864 by a French guy. There were orchards until the 1950s. People kind of forgot about wine. Then wine started to take off in the 1970s. Again, that discontinuation of the subsidy from Mm -hmm. the UK started to spur wine development in New Zealand. Hmm. Frosts, 
you got to accept it if you're growing stuff in the mountains. There are huge diurnal variations, lots of sunshine, short, very hot summers. Site selection is very important because you don't Mm want to wind up with something too cold or too hot for that matter. Overall, pretty low humidity, so they don't have to worry about disease pressure. Mm -hmm. Central Otago Pinot is one of the true gifts of the wine world. It is delicious. It's expensive. How expensive? Around 40 U.S. dollars. Okay. 35, 40 U.S. dollars. And that's for a basic one. Mm-hmm. They've always been expensive because there's not that much wine to go around, and they've always had a great reputation. This is challenging viticulture because it's an extreme climate. And with the extreme climate, there's extreme payoff because you have a number of different soil types. Each subregion is going to have really well-drained soils, but just this lush fruit and then you have silky tannins most of the time then it's got a lot of subtlety there are some sub-regional styles we are starting to see these on the bottle listen up if you want to know what the differences are gibston highest sub-region very Mm -hmm. cool north facing slopes which remember is the equivalent of south facing slopes in the northern hemisphere so warmer sites these are lighter wines but they have a lot of flavor intensity from gibston banach burn is on the south bank of one of the rivers, the Kawarau River, one of the warmest and driest regions. Harvest can be a month ahead of Gibston, which I just mentioned. So Mm -hmm. Gibston is going to have much longer flavor development, but still lots of complexity, just a little bit more full-bodied. Cromwell or Lowburn, Pisa, these are terraces and valley floor that are running parallel to one of the mountain ranges here. Those are richer and fuller because they're from the valley floor. Bendigo, one of the warmest regions. Vines are on north-facing slopes, so that's going to capture heat. Stony soils, good for drainage. Wanaka, cool and a little bit wetter. You have Lake Wanaka here that's going to mitigate some of the frost. The wines are quite good. And Alexandra is actually where Jean Ferraud, who planted the first Pinot vines, this was where he planted them in Alexandra. Ah, okay. And there's schist here. Schist makes full wines, but with marked minerality, delicious. This is a dry climate, great diurnals, strong flavors. There's a style for everybody. And then a lot of the wines just are marked Central Otago because they're within the larger region. They're not all sub-appellated. Right. That's the wrap on New Zealand. But if I were just going to summarize, obviously New Zealand is mostly making Sauvignon Blanc. But there are some excellent examples of Chardonnay, of Pinot Gris, those Bordeaux blends from Hawke's Bay, some Syrah. If you have not experimented outside of Marlboro, it's time to start doing that. You're going to find that there's greater variation than you think. So if I just go into the local wine shop and ask, for, hey, do you guys have regions other than Marlboro from I New would Zealand? ask that, but I would not expect that they're going to have, they're certainly not going to have things from Northland or Auckland, but they will likely, if you start looking, you're going to see things from the Wairarapa. You will see things from South Appalachians within Marlboro. You might see a wine from Nelson. You'll definitely see something from Central Otago right. because that is widely carried. I'm seeing a lot more wines from North Canterbury, especially Rieslings and the Pinots. 
New Zealand is trying its best, and we've done lots of podcasts with Simone talking about these specific regions. So if you want deep dives on any of those, you can go back and I'll list them in the show notes. But if you want to really understand New Zealand, you must move beyond the bottle of Kim Crawford. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. right. You do need to drink something else besides Marlboro because the growers, the ones that are really excited, the winemakers who are most excited about New Zealand are doing a lot of experimentation and the wines have gotten better and it's not just a one note and you've got to move beyond some of the mass brands Mm -hmm. and also beyond just a Marlboro Appalachian to really see what New Zealand has to offer. The running thread is purity of flavor, excellent fruit quality, really skilled winemaking and great clones. For a small country that makes so little wine The focus on quality is universal, at least as far as I've seen. I tip my hat to them because it's not easy, even as a small producer, to be so consistent, to be so good, and then to take your flagship variety and continue to improve upon Mm -hmm. it, too. I would recommend after you listen to this to go back and listen to that episode with Jeff Clark because he does talk about all of the exciting things that are going on, not just in Marlboro, but around New Zealand and the focus on quality. I was going to say winemakers that really care. You set the tone at the beginning by saying it's quality over quantity. Absolutely. So that is New Zealand. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.